Would you turn with me, please, to the uh, fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Our dog has a near pathological hatred of cats. She comes by it fairly honestly. She had uh, a close encounter of the worst possible kind with one uh, a few years back, and she's never forgotten the lessons she's marked in mind as, as well as in body. And uh, she just does not like cats. She's obsessed with uh, her hostility toward them. As a matter of fact, our kids have long teased her by finding her asleep in the backyard, and they'd sneak up to her and lift up her ear and say, Psst, there's a cat. And uh, the uh, dog just turns wrong side out. She just absolutely goes berserk like a punch-drunk fighter coming out of a deep sleep when the phone rings. And uh, I, was, I, I heard her barking. Uh, a few uh, weeks ago and went out into the backyard and uh, saw what the commotion was all about. The neighborhood cat was walking down the, our grape stake fence in the side yard, uh, just sort of making her way right across the top of the fence. And uh, Taffy was jumping up and down and, and, and frothing at the mouth and, and barking. Right across the other side of the fence, our neighbor's dog, who apparently has the same sort of... Uh, hostility toward cats was doing the same sort of thing and this cat with all the poise in the world was just making her way right down the middle of the fence you know. not a not one misstep uh, she seemed to be not at all concerned until she got to the end of the fence and she jumped off and uh, disappeared into the into the bushes and I thought when I saw that that's so much like uh, the Christian life making our way through a sometimes very hostile world where it's possible to fall off on either side of the, uh, of the fence, making our way right down a, a moral knife edge, so, so to speak, with, uh, with opponents on, on all sides. It's a very, very difficult task that we have, being in the world but not of it, to use Jesus' words. He counsels us not to uh, shrink from the world. We are to make friends with sinners, as Jesus did. He was the friend of sinners and our example in the way he, uh, he lived his life. We likewise need to know people that are unbelievers, that are on the outside, and make good friends of them, socialize with them, play with them, do recreational things with them. We work with them. We sit in classes, uh, classrooms with them. We study with them. We're to be in the world, as Jesus says, immersed in the world. But we're not to be of them. That is, we're not to adopt their lifestyle. Our separation is, is vertical rather than horizontal. We're to be separate morally while not separate spatially or geographically. That, that's, that's difficult. That's a very difficult mission, if not well nigh uh, impossible. And yet that's what we're called to. And that's why Paul says in verse 15 of Ephesians 5, Be very careful then how you walk. The uh, NIV translates, be careful how you live. But the word is actually walk. As you take one step after another through the world, be very, very careful. In the words of uh, the contemporary uh, television program, hey, be careful out there, will you? Because it's a dangerous place to live. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. We live in perilous times. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says these are dangerous times. 
He uses a word that the gospel writers use to refer to the uh, men possessed by the legion, the thousands of demons. A man who was so dangerous, that's the word that Paul uses, that people were afraid to, to pass by the cemetery he, uh, he inhabited. And Paul says that's, that's the character of the age in which we live. These are perilous times, not uniformly dangerous, but there will be times of great moral danger where we could easily be engulfed by the, by the darkness. And that's why Paul says, be, be careful out there. Watch how you walk. Making the most of every opportunity. Buy up these times, Paul says, because the days are evil. We talked about that phrase last week. Paul's concern is not with the shortness of time, but with the evil that exists, because evil days provide opportunities for us. The more evil people become, the more empty and shallow their lives seem to be, and, and the more hollow they ring, and they, they know that there must be something more. So evil days are, are days of, of great opportunity that we need to buy up, Paul says. So don't be foolish. Don't be impractical. But understand what the Lord's will is. The way to be salt and light in our society is to be wise, he says, to be practical, men and women. And we can become wise by understanding the will of the Lord. Now, a lot of people are, are confused about how you find the will of God. I, I'm familiar with a half a dozen schemes that people use in order to uh, discover God's will for their life. And when they use that phrase, God's will, they're usually thinking of of some plan that God has for their life in terms of the vocation they shall choose or the mate or the place uh, in the country they'll live or those sorts of things. And certainly it is true that God has a, a plan for us in terms of where we live and who we marry and where we work and what we do with ourselves. That's, in my own mind, the logical handmaiden of, of sovereignty, the, the idea that God is in control of all the affairs of our life. And as you read through Scripture, you... You read the stories of people like uh, Moses and, and Joseph and Abraham and, Ab and, and Jeremiah and others. And, it's, and Jonah, it's, it's apparent that God did have a plan for their life. But uh, that's not what, what Paul is talking about here when he refers to the will of God. The plan that God has for your life is, is God's problem to reveal, not your problem to discover. God's plan in terms of, of an itinerary for you is, is more easily seen in retrospect. I think it's a, as you look back that you see God's hand on your life, set, putting you into certain situations. But in prospect, you don't need to worry about that sort of thing. God will take care of you. I have no idea where I'll be a year from now, and neither do you. But God does, and he'll see to it that we're in the right place at the right time to be what God intends us to be. That's his problem. Not mine. Now, my problem is to focus on what Paul calls the will of God, understanding the will of God, which has very little to do with God's plan for our life. God's will has to do with our character, our morality, and that's clearly revealed in Scripture. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, This is the will of God for you, that you abstain from fornication. And uh, as we saw last week, what Paul is saying is that premarital sex and extramarital sex and, 
and homosexuality and forms of sexual activity that are contrary to the word of God are not God's will for us. And that's very clear. We're living in a, in a society that's saturated with faulty concepts about sex. And it's very easy for us to buy into that system of thinking and, uh, and forget God's will. But Paul says, no, we need to understand God's will and be a different kind of person morally in the midst of a, of a society that distorts uh, the meaning of, of sex. It's never God's will to steal or to lie or to cheat others or defraud others. It's, it's never God's will to not pay our taxes. Those sorts of things are clearly spelled out in Scripture. As Paul puts it in Romans, we're to pay taxes even to totalitarian governments such as the government under which he, uh, he lived. So that as we read Scripture, we come to know what God's will is. We can understand it. And it's walking according to truth then that, that gives us our impact upon society. That's how we become salt. That's how we arrest the spread of corruption. That's Jesus' metaphor. That's how we become light. That's Jesus' term. Or that's Paul. It's also Jesus' term, but Paul's term here in, in, in Ephesians for the effect that we have on the darkness. It's simply a matter of, of walking through your world and mind and in the dangerous times in which we live and exhibiting godlike character. That's what makes people sit up and listen. That's what exposes the darkness for what it is. That's what helps people to see the, the unreality and the coldness and the loneliness and the emptiness of their lives. And so Paul says, don't be foolish. Don't waste your time. Buy up the times. Be what God intends you to be. Understand the will of God as you read scripture and as you live it out. And uh, you'll have a mighty uh, effect, a mighty impact upon the society around you. Now, Paul recognizes that not only is that a dangerous mission, it's also an impossible mission. And that's why he goes on in verse 18 to say, Do not... Get drunk on wine, which leads to, to debauchery. Instead, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Paul recognizes that the uh, society that we live in will drive, drive us to drink if we're not careful. Uh, it's, uh, it's not easy to uh, cope with, with life. And uh, some people find that the, that the only way in which they can, can live in their world is uh, through drink or through drugs. And if they can somehow desensitize themselves uh, by alcohol, then they can, they can live in the world. Paul says, don't do that. Uh, you do need a resource for life of ourselves. We're not able to cope with life. But that's not the proper resource because, he says, that leads to debauchery. That's the term that the NIV translators use. But uh, the word is a translation, that, that term, debauchery, is a translation of a Greek word that has as it, at its root the idea of waste. To face your problems and uh, to try to cope with your life through drink or through drugs is a waste. Not only is it a waste of time, because when you sober up, when you sober up or come down, you still have to face the same hard reality that, you, that, you, that caused you to drink in the first place. And secondly, it will waste you. It'll destroy your life. It leads to to uh, to greater and and uh, uh, greater uh, debauchery. 
to a decline in the quality of your life. And so Paul says, don't don't get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Now, is Paul's answer to the problem of living in the uh, in the dangerous environment to which we're called to live. Be being filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, there have been thousands of words written by Bible uh, teachers and theologians on that phrase. And, uh, and yet there's still a great deal of confusion about the meaning of the filling of the Spirit. How are you filled with the Spirit? There are lists of things which uh, we must do in order to be filled with the Spirit. And some people suggest certain experiences that will uh, fill you with the Spirit. Or you go off to this conference or that uh, place and you have a mountaintop experience and you come back filled with the Spirit. And uh, there, just se- there seems to be a great deal of confu- confusion that uh, prevails. My friend uh, Ray Stedman used to tell about the men who uh, frequently prayed in prayer meetings in the church, Lord, fill me with your spirit. That was his uh, continuing pray, prayer. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Day after day, that was his prayer, until some elderly man one day uh, stood in the middle of his prayer and said, Lord, do something. The man has a leak. <laughs> well, the question is, what, uh, what do you do to be filled with the spirit? If this is the key to everything. If this is the answer to godly behavior in an ungodly world, how are we filled with the Spirit? Well, essentially what Paul is saying here is what he says, what he says throughout his epistles and which Scripture uh, uh, describes throughout, uh, throughout all, of, uh, all of the content of, of the Bible, which the authors describe throughout the content of Scripture, as uh, the basis on which uh, we are able to, to live, as God has called us to live. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. There is only one person who can be godlike, and that's God. It's, it's folly for us to think that we can possess godlike character by ourselves. It is only by faith, by dependence upon God, that we can display the character of God. Some people came to Jesus once and said, What, what should we do? to do the works of God? Now, that's a great question and one which you've probably asked yourself from time to time. How can I do what God wants me to do? How can I be what God wants me to be? How can I do his works and and please him? Well, Jesus answered the question, but he answered it very indirectly. He said, this is the way you work God's works. Keep on believing in me. In other words, we can't do God's works. The only person who can do God's works is God himself. And it's relying upon God in the person of the the Holy Spirit who indwells us, in the person of, of the living Christ who indwells us, that we're able to reproduce the works of God. There's no other way. Now, Scripture says the same thing over and over again. It's always by faith. It's always by dependence that we work the works of God. Jesus uh, used the analogy of a vine and a branch. He said, uh, I am the vine to the disciples. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. And by fruit, he meant character. 
What relationship does a branch sustain to the vine? Well, it's totally dependent upon the vine. It lives on the life of the vine. Sap of the vine flows through the branch and it's able to produce fruit because it's dependent upon the vine. It's a very helpful analogy. Paul says, or Jesus says, that's, that's the way you live your life, by abiding in me, by remaining in me, by clinging to me, by drawing upon the, the life of the, of the vine that, uh, that is available to you. That indwells you. Paul uses another metaphor when he says, uh, we are to put off the old man like a, like a suit of clothes and we're to put on Christ. Same idea expressed in different uh, symbolism. We put away the works of the old man, as Paul goes on to describe them, lying and thievery and immorality, and we're to put on Christ. Just as you would put on a fresh uh, suit of clothes. Just as those of you who wear contact lenses or uh, glasses put them on in the morning, and that's, that's how you see. Uh, I... I uh, very nearsighted. I, I have about 2,400 vision. I'm the original Mr. Magoo. And uh, I get up in the morning and uh, stumble around the the, uh, the bedroom until I get my contacts in and, and see where I'm going. I have, a, a they tell me, 2,400 vision, which means I see at, four, at 20 feet what most of you see at 400 feet. That's how bad my, my eyes are. They're just a, it's just a big blur without my contact lenses. But uh, when I put my lenses in, I'm overcorrected, and I actually have better than normal vision. I have 20-10 vision with my, with my contacts on. Now, how foolish of me to get up some morning and say, well, I, I, I really should not be dependent on anything or anyone. I'm going to try to see this morning and to squint and peer and try to reshape my, uh, my eyeballs so that they're the proper shape to uh, focus well and... Uh, and somehow correct the problem of my bad vision all by myself. I can't do that. I have to rely upon the law of optics or the law of refraction or whatever that uh, physical law is that corrects my vision. I can only do that as I put on my contact lenses. I am dependent upon the laws that adhere in, 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 those, uh, in those lenses. Now, that's what, that's what Scripture says over and over again. In order to be a Christian, you have to rely upon Christ. In order to have the character of God, you have to depend upon the indwelling God. In order to display the, the character of the, of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is holy, you have to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the word filled simply means controlled, possessed and controlled by the Spirit. And so you get up in the morning, and you have to face a whole family full of grumpy, moody people. And you say, thank you, Lord, that you're here in my life, available to me, and I can count on you and depend on you to be gracious and to be kind and to not repay evil with evil, not to react adversely to people when they, when they uh, treat me uh, badly. Uh, Lord, I'm just counting on you for that because I know that you're in me to produce your fruit. That's what it means to be filled and controlled by the Spirit. Uh, some of you uh, mothers uh, uh, now realize that the kids are home for real for the summer. The honeymoon is over. The uh, first week, the kids are excited that they don't have to go to school. And the mothers are excited that they don't have to fix lunches and uh, get the kids up early in the morning. But now all of that is over, and you've just come back to reality and realize that the summer is going to be very hard, and the kids get up quarrelsome, and, 
and irritable, not having anything to do. And by the middle of the day, you're climbing the walls, and so are they. And uh, your husband comes home, and you're a total wreck. Well, how do you face that sort of thing? Well, you get up in the morning, and you say, Thank you, Lord, that you're what I need to take care of these little rascals. And I can be patient, and I can be kind, and I can be firm, and I can be whatever you need me to be, because you're here indwelling me, not off there somewhere, watching me try to do it all on my own. But you're here indwelling me, available to be in me what I need. That's the message of Scripture over and over again. It's really not very difficult. It takes God to make, to make a man or to make a woman. We can't be what God intends us to be without being filled and controlled and flooded with the Spirit of God. Now, turn back with me to John chapter 7. Let me add a, a footnote, Jesus' footnote to Paul's teaching. Or perhaps it's the other way around. It's Paul's footnote to Jesus' teaching we've been looking at. Because Jesus said the same thing first, over and over again. Uh, in chapter 6, he had uh, described uh, man's relationship to him with an odd uh, symbol that offended everyone. He said, you, if, you, if you're going to benefit from my life, you have to eat me and you have to drink me. You have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And that offended people. They said, well, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, of course, Jesus wasn't talking uh, about his actual flesh. He was speaking in symbolic, metaphorical terms. As he explains later in chapter 6, that uh, drinking of him is coming to him and eating of him is believing him. So that all of life consists of coming to Christ and believing in him, counting on him. Then in John 7, he, uh, he elaborates a bit on the last day of the, uh, of the great feast. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from out of him. Now he's quoting, loosely paraphrasing from the Old Testament, a teaching which is found everywhere in the Old or in many places in the Old Testament, that when Messiah came, he would be the source of life. He would be a source of living waters from which uh, men and women could draw their sustenance. And what Jesus is saying is that uh, you should come to me and drink of these living waters. And he goes on to say, by this, or this is John's commentary in verse 39, by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The Spirit then became the, the source of, of uh, the disciples' sustenance. Now that's precisely what, what John is saying. The source of our life is the Spirit of God who indwells us. And that's essential Christian living. Christ is not up there in heaven solely. He is not alongside to help us out. And he doesn't give us a list of commands and then say, now go and, and do the very best you can but rather he indwells us in order to do what he has commanded us to do. All of life, then, all of Christian life is lived in dependence upon him. And Paul says that's the only way we can walk through this dark world and be light. So he says, don't get, don't get drunk. Don't let the world drive you to drink. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. Now, what follows from that command is a series of what I call Mark's of a spirit-filled person. They are threefold. 
Verse 18 reads, Don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the first mark of a Spirit-filled man or woman. The second is always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the third in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the only important verb or finite verb, as grammarians say, the only verb with any time in it is the command be filled with the spirit. What follows are a series of participles that explain what it means to be filled by the spirit. This is not how one becomes filled with the spirit. These are the marks of a spirit filled person. So if you want to know if someone is filled with the spirit, what do you look for? Three things. Well, they they sing a lot, it seems to say. And uh, they're thankful for everything, and they're very, very submissive. That doesn't sound like fun at all. So apparently there must be some things here that are more profound than than the obvious. Uh, Believe me, there are. First mark of a spirit-filled person is that he or she will speak to himself. The verb is really not uh, active, it is reflexive. Speak. Speaking to yourself, he says, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody or music in your heart to the Lord. That's the first mark of a spirit-filled person. Now, you might think that Paul is going back to his metaphor of drunkenness and saying, well, drunks uh, sing all the time. They sing songs like uh, How Dry I Am and 99 Bottles and so forth, but... uh, That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about uh, uh, the the songs that drunks sing. He's rather talking about something much more profound. Now, let me try to explain. Back in those days, they did not have printing presses or mimeograph machines or copy machines. And therefore, uh, the easy access that we have to a Bible was unknown. It wasn't until the 15th century that Gutenberg printed his uh, first Bible. And then individuals had access to written copies of the scriptures. But prior to that, everything was done by hand. They were copied out by scribes painstakingly, very laboriously. And it took a lot of time. And these copies were very rare and very expensive. That's why in the medieval period, they chained their Bibles to the walls or to the reading tables in the churches because people who came in to read the Bible would steal them. They were treasures. And so they had to chain them down to keep them from being taken away. People didn't have access to Bibles. So what they did is memorized scripture, and they very often memorized scripture using music because that's one of the best ways to make something memorable. That's the best mnemonic scheme is to put it to a tune. Like the little song that, that, the, that the kids were singing here uh, earlier. You'll probably never forget that that. Uh, the truth in that song because we sang it. That's what music does for you. That's not only true of people uh, in the church, but it was true in all of the Greek world. They sang their poems and their epic stories. Uh, Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, sang those poems. That's why they're called hymns, Homeric hymns. It was a cultural thing. People sang the things that were important to them. That's the way they remembered them. And since they did not have access to Bibles, they memorized the truth and put tunes to it. Now, they sang psalms. That is, they sang some of the Old Testament songs. 
And uh, they sang some of the New Testament songs, such as Mary's Magnificat and Elizabeth's poem and some of the other poetry that you have in the New Testament, which is very easily put to, uh, put to tune. And they sang what Paul calls hymns. You have an illustration of one back in verse 14, where Paul uh, uh, quotes from a, a, a section of a Christian hymn, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In Greek it rhymes. A little little tune, apparently, that they sang. And spiritual songs were other tunes that they made up or tunes that they borrowed from uh, the secular music scene and they put uh, words to it and they sang it. That's the way they remember the truth. Now, music plays, I think, a, a, a great place in our life as Christians. It sets the tone in our homes. I think playing good Christian music and listening to tapes does something for us. It reminds us of the truth and, and helps us to regain our perspective when, it, when it's off. And I found that uh, tapes uh, played in the automobile on vacations are great for soothing the breasts of little savages. You know, you play, uh, play tapes and it just kind of calms everybody down. It reminds you of the truth and... And frankly, I, you know, I don't listen to the radio much in the car, but the temptation when you do want to listen to something is just turn on the radio and punch a button and, and something comes across. It's not necessarily true at all. And uh, we, we listen to it because we like the beat or whatnot, but it does nothing for us. As a matter of fact, it can even lead us astray. How much better to listen to Christian music that, uh, that says something to us, that reminds us of the truth. So I don't in any sense denigrate the value of Christian music. But I don't think that's Paul's primary concern here. Paul is not saying that one of the marks of a spiritual person is that they're always singing Christian music and they don't listen to any other kind of music. That's not the point at all. He's saying that one of the marks of a spiritual person is that they're preoccupied with the word and they're always speaking to themselves about the truth, singing to themselves the truths that, they, that they've acquired from Scripture and, and uh, reminding themselves of what's real, of what God has said. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to take the truth and apply it to our lives so that it, when we are controlled by the Spirit, then he leads us to take the truth seriously and to let it permeate our thinking, to, to read it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to reflect upon it through the day. And uh, this, uh, Paul says, is one evidence of a person who is, who is filled with the Spirit. The second mark is that we... Give thanks to God the Father for everything. And you'll notice a person filled with the Spirit always give thank, gives thanks for everything. Now, this is one of the few places in Scripture where we're told to give thanks for everything. Normally, we're told to give thanks in everything with the recognition that not all circumstances are good. Some are very adverse and it's very difficult to give thanks for every circumstance, but we can rejoice in the midst of difficult times. But here Paul says, no, that, that being filled with the Spirit gives us an entirely different perspective on our circumstances so that we see that everything, even the most adverse uh, environments and circumstances, are permitted by God, in many cases designed by God, certainly screened through His love and His sovereign permission, in order to build us and equip us and make us what God intends us to be. And so we can very literally give thanks. Spirit-filled Christians will not grouse and gripe and complain 
and be negative about life. Their outlook is positive and thankful. And they're full of praise. Not always, because we all have our times. You know, God still inhabits the human body. We're, and the body is not perfected yet. So there will be times that we give way to gloom and doom. And uh, we will not be very pleasant to live around. But whenever we permit the Spirit of Christ to control us again, one of the results is a thankful spirit. He begins to change our perspective so that we can always give thanks for every circumstance. Now, the third mark, he says in verse 21, is a submissive attitude. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Apparently, there are some people who think that the only individuals that ought to be submissive are women and a few wimpy men. But uh, that's, that's not what Paul says here. He, he says one mark of a spirit-filled man is that he's submissive. He's not brash. He's not opinionated. Uh, he's not defensive. He's not self-assertive. He's a humble man. That's what Paul means by submissive. So the, the third and the last and perhaps the greatest of all these traits is that a spirit-filled man or a spirit-filled woman will be humble. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the first beatitude, happy or blessed are those that are poor in spirit, those that are humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's one of the marks of someone who belongs to God's kingdom is that he or she is humble, not self-asserting, not always demanding their way or their rights, not storming around, imposing their will on everyone else. They're humble. Now what Paul does in the verses that follow is simply spell out what it means to be humble in different spheres of, of life, different realms of society. First in the family, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, women, he says, are to be submissive. They're to be humble in terms of their husband's leadership. The responsibility for providing leadership to the family belongs to the man. That's still the, the biblical mandate that has not been rescinded in recent years. It's still there. The responsibility belongs to the man. He's to give leadership, but as we'll see next week, the right kind of leadership. And uh, that's the way the woman shows her humility and her submission. The man is to show his humility and his submission by giving himself up for his wife. He doesn't walk around the house demanding that she do everything that he wants her to do or throwing his weight around, imposing his will on her so that he can get his way. That's not the point. He, she gives in to his leadership. He gives himself up, as Christ does for the church. And in the second realm, which uh, Paul uh, introduces us to, is uh, that of the family, the relationship between children and fathers. Children show their hu humility by obeying their parents. Fathers show their humility by serving their children, by not angering them, by not driving them to distraction by teaching them and training them and helping them to grow up to maturity so that this mutual submission obtains uh, in the relationship between fathers and sons as well. And then finally, in the business world and the relationship between slaves and masters here, but in, in our world, between employers and employees. Employees show their submission by yielding to the will of their employers. Employers show their submission and their humility by looking after the, the needs of, of their employees. And, and, and this is the way submission is worked out. Now, I had planned this morning to, uh, 
to talk about the relationship between husbands and wives, and I'm already out of time, so I can't do that. We'll do that next week. But I want to go back to something I said earlier earlier about uh, the fact that it takes God in our bodies to make us godly, because that's the most important thing of all about Christian living. As Paul puts it in the place, he says, We have this treasure, and the treasure in context is Christ himself, in earthen vessels. That's us. That's our humanity. And the, the genius, the, the distinctive thing about Christian faith is that it is a treasure that is Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling your earthen vessel, your body. And the two go together. It is our weakness, our frailty, submitted to Christ and his strength that makes things happen in our world. Once we understand the source of power and where our power comes from, then we're not intimidated by the world. Certainly we do have an earthen vessel. Surely we are weak. We are prone to to fail and to fall and to be broken and crushed and to give in and to become discouraged. But what we come to see is that pressures on the earthen vessel are really just pressures on Christ who indwells us. And he's adequate for anything. And once we understand that, as Paul says, we can go through the world and like a, a, a woman walking through a room who leaves behind the fragrance of her perfume, of her perfume, wherever we go, we leave behind the fragrance of Christ's life. People look at us and they say, where did that person come from? Where did they get that quality of life? And see, it doesn't tough effort or trying harder, gritting your teeth and deciding that you're going to do better. It comes from this filling of the Spirit, permitting the Spirit of Christ to fill us and flood us and control us and be in us what God has determined that we shall be. That's what it means to be authentically Christian. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, forgive us for those times that we, that we all have, uh, with the best of intentions, but mainly in confidence in ourselves, gone out and, and tried to, uh, to be godly, tried to affect others, have tried to change, change people by what we say and what we do and by the power of our personality and by our intellect and by uh, our attempts to manipulate or to get people to, to do even good things, but, but to do it in self-effort. Lord, forgive us for all of that. Help us to realize that the kingdom of God does not come through words, nor does it come through self-effort, but it comes through power, the, the sort of power that the Spirit gives us when we're submitted to him. And so we ask that as a pattern of life, Lord, we would awaken every day with, with an awareness of your presence, that you're here and available to us, and that we would permit you to fill us and be in us what we, what we long to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>